I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in the series, You Were Dead, Letter to the Church in Colossae. Paul tells the Christians in Colossae, We have not stopped praying for you. Paul talks about prayer this way all the time. In 1 Thessalonians, he tells disciples of Jesus then and now, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. The state of constant, unbroken communion with God sounds to us impossibly far-fetched, and yet Paul neither qualifies nor diminishes the command, pray without ceasing. We're spending the summer in a deep dive of one first century letter written by a master apprentice of Jesus called Paul, and then sent to a community of new disciples of Jesus in a city called Colossae. The Christians in Colossae were doing well, the church was thriving, but they were facing pressure from the culture all around them to abandon or budge or else give up on the teachings of Jesus. We picked this letter at this particular time because this is a paradigm that you and I know well, doing our best to learn to follow Jesus with cultural pressure all around us to give up on or abandon or budge on the way of Jesus. So the plan for the weeks ahead is to unpack Paul's profound, layered, pastoral, theological insights here on Sunday evenings, and then we're going to take what we're learning back into smaller groups that we call Van City Communities to work on putting it into practice together. So if you don't mind, go ahead and stand with me again as a physical demonstration of attentiveness and really as reverence as we read from the scriptures, Colossians 1, beginning with verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience." And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. Thank you, guys. In his wonderful book, Sacred Fire, Ronald Rollheiser imagines a son or a daughter grown to adulthood who day after day visits a care home to sit with their aging parent. Sometimes these meetings are wrought with emotion, their meaningful conversation, palpable intimacy and connection, but more often than not, the child, now grown, simply sits with the parent, or they tidy up, or they make tea, or they change linens, or they talk about the weather and work and grandkids. They do this again and again, day after day for years, until one day, the child, now grown, realizes something incredible. Sitting with a sibling who does not consistently visit their aging parent, they realize as they they talk that this other sibling hardly knows their parent at all. They look back into the archives of their memory, surprised, knowing that though there have been many emotional profound meetings, occasionally punctuating the hundreds, the vast majority of them were unremarkable. They simply sat together sometimes hardly speaking at all, merely aware of the other's presence in the room. In fact, often they showed up distracted or harried, and many of the meetings they can recall 
with no specificity whatsoever. They only know that they went. And yet, to sit with this sibling who hardly visits their parent at all, it's undeniable that the sum total of all that time together, most of it ordinary and routine, is that one child knows the parent intimately and the other not at all. This, Rollheiser argues, is the difference between a life of prayer and a life without it. And I think that this is the crux of Paul's disposition of gratitude, out of which he writes, and into which he calls readers of his letter then and now. So, let's look at the text and let's work through it one line at a time. Are you guys all right? You with me? Great, thank you. Cam's sitting in the front and he hears me uh, talk about how I can never hear anybody. There's a huge gap between me and you guys. So he, I was like, hey, you guys, and I could hear specifically his voice. Yes! Thank you for that encouragement. But it's you, so it doesn't count. It's like your mom telling you, oh, you did great. <laughs> okay. First Colossians, or first Colossians. There's only the one. <laughs> now you messed me up, man. You threw me off trying to encourage me. Colossians 1, verse 9. Let's work through the text line by line. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Now, obviously... We're breaking this letter up into chunks for the purpose of study and practicality, and so you guys don't have to hear me talk for two hours at a time. But Paul always intended it to be read in one continuous sitting, usually out loud, in front of the church. Someone would come into the church in Colossae, open up the scroll, read the entire letter top to bottom, they'd roll it up, take it to another church, and do the same thing. Now, that doesn't mean that what we're doing is wrong, per se, but it does remind us that we have to do a lot of work to preserve the context and flow of the letter because we're coming at it piece by piece, separated by weeks at a time. To prove my point, I'm going to read to you from my own private text messages. You're going to love this. This is a conversation amongst the group of friends with whom I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons for the last four years. The text looks like this. Okay, you guys can't see it, but I'll read it to you. It says, Michael Dumont, he's over there, right? Michael, yep, he's over there. He says, are there any race or class features that can boost that? You, what's that? You don't know. And then uh, our friend Matt says, yeah, be good at dexterity. So some races get that. So do some classes. Michael, unimpressed, says, huh, I guess I had that written down wrong. Sorry for accidentally adding one extra point to my initiative for the past 18 months, guys. And that's hilarious. Matt says, ha, 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 amazing. Then he, <laughs> he says, we got to start over now. Michael says, I've compromised the integrity of the entire extended universe. And Matt says, fine by me. This time around, I'm keeping that freaking box. What box? You don't know. Then Abby pipes in. My wife, Abby, she plays with us. She says, and I'm never being a paladin again. Screw those guys. And then Matt Hughes says, yeah, paladins suck. And then Michael says, man, I love being a paladin. Just smashing stuff with my sword and getting insane amounts of damage. But then Abigail says, but when I was an elf sorcerer, <laughs> well, when I was an elf sorcerer, I was easily doing 60 to 70 every time at this level. Lots of fireballs, she says. That's a, uh, you know, an emoji there, you can't tell. And then Matt says, yeah, we miss Vera. <laughs> what on earth is anyone talking about? Well, maybe if you would know if you hadn't been dropped into a random excerpt of an already complicated conversation. And don't you feel left out now, man. Think of all the fun that we're having. So when this evening's text opens with 
the line, for this reason. We have to pause for a moment and think back to where we've been so that it makes any sense to us at all. For what reason? Last week, we talked about gratitude as the foundation of Paul's letter, of all of Paul's writings. Gratitude that when God should have been done with Paul, when Paul was God's enemy and God could have destroyed him, God saved him instead. And now, though Paul's life is anything but easy or glamorous or free from suffering and complication, by no means. Read the New Testament. It's not. Even so, Paul can't help but celebrate the incredible proliferation of the Jesus movement across the ancient world. God is at work. He's doing exactly what he said he would, and Paul is grateful. He's thankful. In fact, he says that he is always rejoicing. Though so many, including Paul, were hell-bent on snuffing it out, this tiny grassroots movement, then called The Way, is growing More and more men and women of all kinds of stories and backgrounds and ethnicities and ages and genders are coming together, living in community under the teaching and kingship of Jesus. Paul didn't plant the church in Colossae, Epaphras did. He hasn't even visited it yet. But he's heard that this new community is sincere and faithful, that they're really showing up, not perfect by any means, but faithfully loving one another and Jesus. For this reason, Paul writes... Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. That's the context and setup. Now, it sounds like a bold statement, the idea that we have not stopped praying for you, but it's not exactly out of place. Paul talks this way quite a bit. Look at this from 1 Thessalonians. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Think of that language, geez. Always, constantly, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Later in that same letter, he tells the readers to do the same thing. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in King Jesus for you. Or in Romans, God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly... I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Or in Ephesians, for this reason, ever since since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's the thing you have to remember about this seemingly hyperbolic pray without ceasing, constantly, always talk. We say stuff about prayer without really meaning it. Sometimes someone tells us about the things going on in their lives, and then we reflexively, kind of without knowing what else to say, just fill that space with, I'll be praying for you, and then we don't. At least I didn't uh, for many years. I said that kind of thing all the time, very guilty of this. And honestly, in the moment, I absolutely intended to follow through. It's not like I was admitting something that I knew for sure I wouldn't do. I was like, yeah, I'll absolutely pray for them. But then I did not do it. I'm distracted and forgetful. And most of the time, I would not pray for that person. If, uh, maybe once, but never on and on, and sometimes not at all. And then years ago, I made a rule for myself that I don't tell people that I'll pray for them unless I take out a notebook, analog or digital, and write it down on my list of things that I pray through throughout the week. Without that, honestly, I lose track. So that's a handy bit of a, a tip for you. Life hack if you want to change that. But Paul frequently talks about an ongoing, frequent, even unbroken disposition of what we call intercession, praying for someone or something, and thanksgiving. 
is such a thing even possible, or is that pure hyperbole? We're going to come back to that before we end. But first, let's read what Paul is praying over the Christians in Colossae. Keep reading in Colossians 1, verse 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Now, this is going to become increasingly clear as we move through the entire letter, but for now, remember that the context of the letter is a church of faithful Christians facing cultural pressure to distort or water down or abandon the teachings of Jesus. Specifically, scholars believe that one of the theological threats to the early church was the then-emerging spirituality called Gnosticism, which emphasized personal spiritual knowledge or gnosis over the shared communal teachings and life of the church. Sound familiar at all? We still have the exact same thing going on. There were likely other alternative modes of spirituality kind of eking their way into the church. And Paul wants the Christians in Colossae to be very aware, to be very shrewd about anything that might diminish the story of Jesus handed down in the scriptures and by the eyewitness accounts of his life. He warns them again and again, if it does not sound like the story you received, for us, that's the New Testament, the Old Testament, for them, the Old Testament, and the oral history passed down from the apostles. If Again, if it does not sound like that, it is not true, don't believe it. And again, this is us. This is our story. There is, for many of us, ubiquitous and overwhelming pressure from culture, friends, family, social media, groupthink, political idolatry, conservatism, progressivism, to adjust or else abandon the things handed down by the scriptures, by the apostles, and by the early church. If the, if the way of Jesus, what we call orthodoxy or right belief, doesn't synchronize with evolving cultural paradigms of the way we live and eat and shop, the way we work, share life, our paradigms of sex and gender and justice, then the pressure from the culture becomes tweak them or change them or else drop them. Or for those of us raised in Christian culture, if our sincere quest into deeper understanding of the scriptures, the writing and teaching of Jesus, the early church, turn out to contradict some precious thing that we had been taught under the Christian culture umbrella, the pressure is to latch on to it with a terrified death grip and never let it go. And this, both of those scenarios, is why we need the community of the church. More than 2,000 years of thinking and writing and accountability to keep our eyes and minds and hearts open to the truth. Because here, from the outset of the letter, Paul is making it clear that the way disciples of Jesus combat the pressure of false teaching is not by turning our minds off. Look at verse 9 again. We continually ask God to fill you with the, what? Knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Paul would not be a fan of the anti-intellectualism that often festers in certain traditions of the church. The closed-mindedness that argues, we don't need all that theology and academia, it just distracts us from what really matters. We don't need all these books and scholars, all we need is good hearts and the Bible and God. Paul would not agree, nor Jesus for that matter. Last week we talked about the great Shema which is a prayer from Deuteronomy 6 recited by Jewish people every morning and evening for thousands of years. Part of the Shema is this, love Yahweh God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. 
And then later, Jesus quotes the Shema with one noteworthy addition. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, one scholar I read this week described Paul's emphasis on knowledge and wisdom and understanding by saying this. The three terms speak of knowledge, of academic excellence and perception, and of analytical perception. Now, don't get me or Paul or Jesus wrong. None of us are saying that without a PhD and a mega brain, one cannot adequately follow Jesus. I have neither, and I follow Jesus. Any human can follow Jesus, all IQs. The point is not to qualify discipleship in terms of intelligence, but to describe it as something that requires the mind God gave you with all of its potential and with all of its limitations you will not be held accountable for not being smarter. (laughs) That you can't help. But you will be held accountable for how much you loved God with the mind you have. My job, my job is to read and study and teach theology and Bible, so I spend hours every week reading people much smarter than I am. I'm fine with that. In fact, I am very grateful for it. I don't give up on learning because there's a ceiling to my intellect. I pursue the knowledge of God's will, the wisdom and understanding of God with, in Jesus' words, all my mind, all my mind. Knowledge, Paul writes, is how we know the will of God in the first place. Emotions matter, but emotions are not how we know the will of God. I can't stress this enough. It's one of the more ubiquitous objections that I hear with the often difficult teachings of Jesus and writings of Scripture is, it just doesn't feel right which almost always translates to, I just don't feel like obeying. Without time in the scriptures, seeking God's spirit, weighing things out in the accountability of community, what is there to go on but the temporal, fleeting, unreliability of ephemeral feeling? Feelings matter, don't get me wrong, they absolutely do, God made you to have emotions, But feelings are faulty in discerning the will of God. Now, knowledge alone is also imperfect. That's why we need one another. We don't just feel our way through discipleship, and we don't just learn our way through discipleship in a vacuum. We need one another. We need other disciples of Jesus who are also learning the knowledge and the will of God, who love us enough to tell us when we're off. Without that, we cannot follow Jesus. And our shared growing knowledge and understanding shapes the way that we feel into alignment with the things of God more and more over, over time so that we learn to love the way that God loves. I got a letter last week from someone who listens to the podcast elsewhere in the world, and they were really struggling, I think understandably, with the black and white moralism surrounding uh, COVID and vaccination. And they mentioned, just in passing to kind of frame the letter, something like, I don't have a community of other Jesus followers to figure this out with me, so that's why they were asking the questions. And they wanted advice as to how to love other people without getting sucked into the ridiculous politicization of every freaking thing. But Rather than focusing on their specific question and giving them tips, oh, I would try this and this, my reply was simply, get in community with other disciples of Jesus. That's step one, start there, now, today. To anyone who wants to follow Jesus, 
Don't just fill a seat in a sanctuary or take up space in a small group. Really show up and invest and participate and give and share life with other disciples of Jesus. One church, not one home church and one fun church. One church, one community, be there, not to take, but to give and to receive in reciprocation with other disciples of Jesus. They will not be perfect, neither will you, by the way, but if you want to know where God is leading, you need other disciples of Jesus with which to share the journey of your discipleship. We need one another to follow Jesus, but thank God we have more than that. I've been in community for a very long time now, more than a decade. Um, my Van City community has been together meeting almost every week for, I think, more than six years now. Is that right, Cam? More than six years. And I was in community before that at the church that planted ours. So I have seen it go well, and I have seen it go poorly. I've been corrected and rebuked um, and held accountable for my sin, and I have been hurt and wronged and I have been the one who had to do the rebuking. I've also been encouraged and blessed and cared for with self-sacrificial love, and I have simply enjoyed the rhythm and routine of seeing people that I love on a regular basis with all their imperfections and them tolerating my overwhelming amount of imperfections. And one reason I am absolutely convinced that community is the only way to follow Jesus is not just because the Bible says so, it does very clearly from cover to cover, but because it isn't simple or accommodating or easy or painless. I am skeptical, very, very skeptical of any progressive, safe space, utopian vision of life that wants desperately to clear away anyone or anything that might disagree with or challenge or question or offend me. What I want to believe and what I want to do and how I want to feel and live. I know myself well enough to know that my vision for life in the world can often be wrong. Not always, but it can be very wrong. And I need something beyond myself to speak into my life on a regular basis and hold me accountable to the things that I believe. Thank God we have each other and thank God that that's not all we have. Paul writes, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Last week I spoke at length about why we emphasize consistent, faithful, participatory presence at both the Sunday gathering week in and week out and in Van City communities as what it means to be a part of our church. So we want to do more than have you listen to me talk for a half hour or more than just hang out with some friends on a weeknight and maybe catch a podcast on and off. So we spend time in every gathering praying and listening and waiting on God's Spirit. We do the same thing in our communities with guided exercises that we call the practices, praying over one another, listening, talking, catching up on life, but doing so in the context of prayer and God's Spirit present speaking over us. God's Spirit, or what the Scriptures call the Spirit of Jesus, leads and directs us as we seek knowledge and wisdom and understanding and as we work to hold one another accountable to the way of Jesus. That is why we do this. Look at verse 10. So that, all of that, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. 
Look at the way that Paul parallels orthodoxy or right belief with orthopraxy or right practice. Right belief and right practice. Right living flows out of right belief, but believing the right things is meaningless without practice. Again, Scott McKnight argues, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation makes an indecisive, why the words sometimes just completely fall out of my line. You can't argue with it. Connection between redemption and practice. So thank you for your patience with me as I read aloud. N.T. Wright puts it even more simply than that. God is at work, therefore his people are at work. Jesus emphasized the same thing again and again and again in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. By their fruit, you will recognize disciples of Jesus. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. No disciple of Jesus is perfect, but you will be able to recognize whether or not someone follows Jesus by looking at their lives. Jesus said so, and so does the New Testament again and again and again. How can you know if someone is a Christian? Not by what they claim to believe alone, but by what they do. Examine their lives. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Hearing Jesus isn't enough. The teaching of Jesus must then be put into practice. Practice, not perfection, but the honest and sincere trial and error, hard work of putting Jesus' teaching into practice, growing more as we do it, getting better and maturing. Later, Jesus applies that same stark, sobering idea of the difference between listening and actually obeying. He applies that to judgment in his parable of the sheep and the goats, saying, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Not believed for you, did for you. He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Not, not, not did not believe for me, but did not do for me. Our belief compels lifestyle. And by that way of living, we grow further in the knowledge of God. Live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Pay attention to that language, every good work. Paul uh, and the other New Testament authors would not agree with the whole Reformed Protestant hang-up on the idea of good works, the whole we're terrified of the idea of good works. No, 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 we're not saved by works. One of my professors used to say, no one does anything to get picked for the team. All they have to do is say yes. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it, but God picked you. All you have to do is say yes, and you're on the team. No works, no accomplishment, nothing that you do earned your way onto the team. But once you are on the team, there is work to do. And living a life 
worthy of the Lord in Paul's language is a challenging concept for us for a few reasons. Not only is ours not an honor and shame culture, so that completely flies by us, but generationally, most of us don't have a huge value on cultural gestures of respect. Ours is a world of hyper-individualism, the whole you-do-you, Diet Coke, Instagram world of hashtag do what makes you happy that I'm always ranting about. I'm sure you guys are really enthusiastic about hearing it again. I was um, raised in the rural deep south where it was absolutely unheard of for someone to refer to anyone that they didn't know or that was older than them as anything other than sir or ma'am. If someone older than you or that you don't know asks you a question, you say, yes, sir, or no, sir, if they're a guy, and yes, ma'am, or no, ma'am, if they're a girl. And you never, ever say what to anyone. That's like spitting in their face. What is very, very rude. You say, sir, or you say, ma'am, if you didn't hear them or you have to ask a question. We did other weird things, too, like never, ever, ever wearing hats inside under any circumstances. That's disrespectful for a hat to be on your head when you're inside. And I hated these things growing up because I'm wired for rule breaking. I don't like being told what to do. And I really, really don't like rules for rules sake. So if someone said, it's just what we do, I said, that's not good enough for me. And then, you know, put on a hat, even though I didn't want a hat. I hated these things growing up. Now that I'm older, creeping up on 38, I can see the value and symbols and gestures of respect for people and for things, not to mention the fact that they are all over the scriptures. My generation is mostly dispensed with them, and I see the way that it challenges young disciples of Jesus who are coming at these symbols and gestures of respect and reverence all throughout the scriptures and thinking, oh, what the heck is this? Imagine being invited to train under an expert. You've been invited to join a class of young apprentices to learn under one of the world's most respected masters in a given field or discipline or craft. And this master rarely takes new apprentices, so this is an incredible opportunity. You've been scholarshiped, you didn't have to pay, you get to come and learn from the master. It's amazing. But you show up late, you spend the entire training zoned out on your phone, you don't practice, you leave early, you don't answer, you don't look anyone in the eye. Someone would rightly assess that your attitude is, quote, not worthy of the master. Living a life worthy of the Lord is not some kind of fretful, rule-keeping, desperate to curry God's favor with good behavior, stave off a punishment by staying in line. Oh, i got to be worthy of God. Living a life worthy of the Lord is the loving relational honor we ascribe to our master by caring for the things he says and applying the things that he teaches us. This also means that just as Paul calls his readers saints, we can live lives worthy of the Lord. That is the implication here. This can be done. We are not doomed to the miserable wretchedness of, oh, I'm nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. You can live a life worthy of the Lord. Not perfect, but worthy. And in doing so, we get better at it over time. Look at verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Endurance, not giving in to outside pressure, not succumbing to the cultural undertow, and patience, not becoming embittered or combative in the process. No culture war, no angry, entitled, our rights, 
you know, political pseudo-Christian warrior mentality. No, endurance as faithfulness to the way of Jesus and patience in keeping with the way of Jesus. Gentleness, nonviolence, and enemy love. And then verse 12, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. It all comes back to gratitude for what God has done and what God is doing. The church in Colossae was made up of both Jewish and Gentile disciples of Jesus. Thus, Paul celebrates this new family of God that even those beyond Israel have been qualified to God to become sons and daughters of the Father. Now, to end, I think that the heart of this text, there's a lot here. You could do 10 sermons on every single line. But for you and me, for our purposes tonight, I think the heart of our text is what is not what Paul is asking of the Colossians necessarily, but what Paul is doing for them. In the very beginning, he says, we have not stopped praying for you. So I think we zoom right past, it's like, oh sure, Paul says something like that. And that's just some kind of hyperbolic, no one really does that. How can this be true? How can anyone possibly do this? What does it mean to not stop praying? A little while ago, I was reading this uh, little book by Frank C. Laubach, um, a Christian missionary in a remote region of the Philippines who spent years amongst Muslims teaching them to read. And he developed a literacy, literacy plan that has been used to teach millions of people how to read and write to this very day. But this little book of letters isn't really about his program to teach literacy, though that was one of his big passions in his life. It's about Laubach's quest to pray without ceasing. He kept a journal, and he sent letters to his father describing this um, ongoing pursuit of trying to keep God in front of him every minute of every day. He invented this thing called uh, the game of minutes, or the game with minutes, in which one practices living in conscious moment-by-moment communion with God. And then he documents in this little book, like, I did horrible today, I did horrible today. Hey, I actually did it for the most part of the day. I thought about God all day long. And then he documents, this thing helped me, this thing moved me more into God's presence. And then it's very refreshing because you'll turn a page and he'll be like, bad day, didn't do it at all. And then the next page, hey, things are going pretty well. It's very human. But I was struck by this particular letter that he wrote on October 11th, 1931, He says, knowing God better and better is an achievement of friendship. When two persons fall in love, there may be such a strong feeling of fellowship, such a delight in the friend's presence, that one may lose oneself in the deepening discovery of another person. The self and the person loved become equally real. There are, therefore, three questions which we may ask. Do you believe in God? That's not getting very far. The devils believe and tremble. Second, Are you acquainted with God? We are acquainted with people with whom we have had some business dealings. Third, is God your friend? Or putting this another way, do you love God? It is the third stage that is really vital. How is it to be achieved precisely as any friendship is achieved by doing things together? The depth and intensity of the friendship will depend upon variety and extent of the things we do and enjoy together. Will the friendship be constant? That, again, depends upon the preeminence of our common interests and upon whether or not our interests grow into ever-widening circles so that we do not stagnate. The highest friendship demands growth. 
It must be progressive, progressive as life itself is progressive. Friends must walk together. They cannot long stand still together, for that means death to friendship and to life. Whether you want to or not, you already live in moment-by-moment communion with masters and stories and ideas. And each one of those things is shaping you into the person that you are becoming. Over the last year and a half, I was struck by how often I heard or read about another person who decided to switch off the 24-hour news cycle and discovered, surprise, surprise, I feel so much better. I heard this from liberals and conservatives, from right-wingers and staunch progressives, all kinds of different people. It was when I turned off the news, I started to feel better. It makes perfect sense. You live in communion with concepts and ideas and voices and personalities and perspectives, and even the most free-thinking individualist is shaped by them. Of the few people I know that decide to leave social media behind, I have never heard any of them say, God, I miss it. I can't wait to get back on there. Look at the screen time report on your phone. How much time do you spend on news apps or on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is for you? We tend to think of ourselves as too smart to be suckered in by outside voices. I know I did for a very long time. But it's just the way that the human brain works. All of us are vulnerable in one way or another to influence. I notice that all the time when I meet with people or talk to my friends, you can absolutely tell who's been on Instagram, who's been watching CNN, who spends time in front of a Facebook feed. And alternately, you can really, really tell who manages to remain wonderfully oblivious to all those things. So to pray without ceasing seems impossible to us because we think of prayer as always and only, you know, squinting our eyes shut in a quiet place and saying things to God. And that is prayer, but prayer is life with God. In the same way that my life with my wife, (laughs) well, uh, my life with Abby is absolutely, you know, sitting one-on-one, face-to-face, with no distractions, dialogue, conversation, communication, talking, listening. Yes, 100%. But it's also sitting with each other on the couch and reading at night, or taking a walk together without saying much at all, or curled up under a blanket watching a movie, or sleeping beside each other in the same bed night after night after night, life together, like Rollheiser's imagined son or daughter visiting their aging parent for day, every day for years, accumulating in deeper intimacy and connection, knowing and being known even over the span of many unremarkable hours together. That is prayer without ceasing. Dallas Willard, inspired by Laubach in this little letter, he said of his effort to practice the presence of God every minute of every day, the thing that seems so unrealistic to us, anyone who wants to actively love God all the time can do this. A child can do it, as well as those who have no special qualifications or advantages. Why not begin now? The door is open and the master calls. You certainly have nothing better to do. There's a very specific reason and very deeply held conviction that motivated us to re-architect our church around the practices years ago. We often say that we believe that the spiritual disciplines, things like prayer and fasting, listening prayer, all the stuff that the Holy Spirit does, that these things are a means to an end and that the end is to be with God. 
We often say that the first foundational goal of discipleship is to be with Jesus. And here's why I'm landing with all this. I know how it sounds. I know that it sounds mystical and abstract and realistic only to the super special, super special professional Christian. That's me, professional Christian. I said it earlier, I study and teach the Bible and theology for a living. So if anyone has space to figure out, you know, the whole being with Jesus, you might say it's probably someone like you, that's your job. But again, all of us are with someone or something every single moment of every single day. Think about conversations that you have with your friends. What kinds of things populate those conversations? Usually the things that you care about. The things that you care about are the things that you are with. So when me and Eric uh, put away all this stuff on Sunday nights or we set it up on Sunday afternoons, we often talk about music together. Hey, what are you listening to? Did you hear this record? Have you heard this? I'm really into this right now. Oh, I'll give that a try. Those are things we're with. We care about those things. With, and then with Cam, Eric goes and talks about basketball, I presume. I walk by and I hear like, that doesn't make any sense. It must be basketball. Um, I have a text thread with friends just for trying entire discographies of artists that we haven't really listened to. And then we get together and we talk about those things that we're listening to. Some of my friends talk about movies all the time. When I spend time with other friends who work at other churches, we often talk about, you guessed it, working at churches. Um, I walk by conversations every day about all kinds of different things, politics or TV shows or, by the grace of God, book clubs more and more often. God bless you. Keep reading. Good for you guys. Moms talk to other moms about momming. Um, and guitar nerds like Eric talk to other guitar nerds like Bennett. They spent a half, this is a real story, they spent a half hour hunched over a pedal the other night, poking at it and going, oh, wow, so cool, wow, wow. <laughs> Everyone else was done and ready to go home. My point is that we nurture our interests in and concern for these things, and then we carry them around with us in such a way that they shape the way that we talk and spend our time and money and energy and mental and emotional capacity. It's not that they're wrong. It's just what we're all doing. We are, in this sense, with these things. And it's easier, isn't it? Being with things that pique your interest in more obvious ways, things that you can see and touch, things that demand your attention whether you like it or not. It is easier. So, throughout the history of the Jesus movement, Christians have developed disciplined rhythms to draw our thinking and feeling back to God again and again because they know it's not easy. So monasteries, for example, have bells. And when the bell rings... The monks or nuns stop what they're doing immediately and go to their time of prayer or to their responsibilities at the monastery. And this interruption, an immediate obedient response, teaches monks and nuns that time is not theirs, but God's. This is something that we desperately do not want to hear. Time is not yours, but God's. And I'm landing here because I believe Paul's prayer for the Colossians can only be realized when they operate out of the presupposition from which Paul prayed in the first place. Meaning, Paul says that he never stops praying for them, for the wisdom and knowledge and understanding that the Spirit brings, that they will live lives worthy of the Lord, fruitful lives of right belief, right practice, in action that honor Jesus, that are worthy of King Jesus. But the Christians in Colossae can only do that when they learn what it means to always pray. When God is more than an aside 
to their otherwise busy lives and smartphone feeds and television and sleep. When God becomes not only the intimate relational dynamic in moments set aside for quiet prayer, absolutely that, but also the ever-present backdrop for life in offices and neighborhoods and with tiny kids pulling at your pant legs and while you try to accomplish three things at one time. Not all of us can or should move to monasteries and not all, all of us can carve out exactly the same rhythms for prayer and meditation. Depends on your season of life and stage of apprenticeship. But all of us can begin to learn what it means to practice the presence of God. All of us. Busy or bored, spiritually mature or brand new to Jesus, whether you have nothing to do or days packed with responsibilities and the needs of small children, all of us can learn to experience life with God in our unique respective seasons of life and stages of apprenticeship. Most often this happens not from a parting of the clouds and an epiphany from heaven, but by learning to pray while you wash dishes or by kneeling by your bed to pray before you get in it at night or by setting your watch or phone for an alarm that rings out at the same time every day and when it does, when it does wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you take a deep breath and you remember that God is with you and you be with him, if only for a moment. We do this by getting up just a little bit earlier to be in the scriptures and in the presence of God before the day begins. We do this by setting aside our pride and reservations during the gathering to worship uninhibited, recognizing the uniqueness of that time, the privilege of that time. We do this by opening up in community, though we may know that it isn't perfect and that there are people there that aren't perfect. Not them, not us, but we open up anyway. We do this by filling our minds with teaching and knowledge and listening to podcasts and sermons and reading books to fortify our right belief, orthodoxy, over and against the overwhelming of pressure of the culture to abandon those things. We fill our minds up with the teachings of Scripture and of Jesus, theology, Bible, when we could be zoning out on social media or binging another miniseries. And we want to learn this together. This week's practice is up at vancity.church slash Colossians. But if I may, uh, before we go to worship again, let me offer just a few suggestions and a bit of encouragement. First, my encouragement for you guys is to begin with adjustments rather than an overhaul. And what I mean is that if you set out to, you know, wake up at 4 a.m. starting tomorrow morning and pray for three hours every single day, you'll likely set yourself up for failure and disappointment and then you'll quit and you'll never do it again. But what if instead you get up just 15 minutes earlier to read and to pray? Just sit on the edge of your bed, the Bible right beside your bed, get up just 15 minutes earlier or, you know, if you're, if you're out of practice, or if you kind of have a rhythm going already, add a little bit of time to it. What if instead you set an alarm to go off every day for just a moment so that you can meditate on God's presence? 30 seconds out of your day to reorient yourself, take a deep breath, and remember that you are God's beloved daughter or son. Start with 
adjustments rather than an overhaul. And next, find your monastery bells. Why do monks and nuns have bells to signal their time of prayer? Why do our Catholic brothers and sisters actually use physical rosary beads to lead them through a succession of prayer? Because when we use real-life signals to create rhythms, those rhythms become habits, and those habits shape the person we are becoming. So what if you set the alarm, like I mentioned earlier? Another thing I like to do is to designate different spaces or objects as visual, physical prayer prompts. So you say to yourself, when I pass this window, I'll pray, if just for a moment. Redirect your mind and thinking to God on that window. You won't do it perfectly every time, but build that into your routine. Or when I pass this door, I think about God for a second. Or when I hug my kid, this is something that I've been trying to consciously build into my daily routine as a dad. So when my kids come to me and embrace me, I actually try to stop and think about the, how fleeting this time is, that at some point, uh, you know, it stands to reason that they won't want to constantly hold on to me all day long. They'll be like, you're dead, whatever, you know, or whatever teenagers are like. Yeah, I'm sure some of you guys know about it. So while I'm here and they want to hang on to me and kiss my face and shower with me affection, I stop and I actually try to take that moment in, in God's presence, to be grateful. God, make me into a wise father that values these things and grows with them as they grow. Or when the toddler pulls at your pants leg, you just ask for God's grace as a parent. That becomes your monastery bell. Or you say, in my car, I will pray rather than podcast. Even if it's just for the first five minutes. You've got to drive for a little bit every day or every week. That's the time where you pray. Think about the rhythm of your day and week and ask yourself if there are simple things that be- can become totems for prayer and practicing the presence of God. And finally, fully invest in the rhythms that you already have. Come to church ready to meet with God, to really pray and listen, and to really invest in the time that we have to worship together. Show up to your community ready to do the same thing. Don't take these things for granted. I don't mean that you have to turn every gathering and every community dinner into some dire, hyper-emotional prayer vigil. It's not realistic, and frankly, no one wants to do that. I just mean take these things seriously. Really show up. I love theology, personally. I love it enough to tattoo it across my fingers. When I first fell in love with theology, I could almost immediately tell that for me, this was going to become a powerful means by which I would know and love God, that my vocation was there, that this was one way that I could love God with all my mind in the words of Jesus. I didn't stop loving theology. It's more important to me now than ever. But over the years, I've realized that there have been times when I was reading stacks of books and studying all the time, knee-deep in seminary papers, and in all of that, I was experiencing a profound connection with God and His Spirit because I was just every day filling my mind up with the things of God, learning and growing in awe of God. But there have also been times when all I was doing was sitting on my couch in the early dark hours of the morning, a Bible in front of me, and just reading a few lines slowly and then looking out the window at a quiet street, and God somehow felt closer than ever before, as close as when I was poring over papers and praying for hours at a time. 
There have been moments when I sat with my kids quietly and brought God to mind and felt his presence and power as intimately as any amazing moment of worship on a Sunday night. Or there were times when I read or got up early or sat with my kids and when I moved through the ordinary rhythms of life oblivious to God's presence and not feeling anything whatsoever. The difference is in being with God and bringing your heart and mind into God's presence again and again and again as a learned thing. Most of the time, it isn't incredible spiritual euphoria, but the simple intimacy of being together compounds slowly over days, weeks, and years, and we realize that somehow in the culmination of those moments, waking up just a tiny bit earlier or of kneeling by our beds or hearing that monastery bell ring through a beeping watch or through a commute or for washing dishes or through a kid calling out, Mom, 25,000 times a day, we realize that somehow through bringing God to mind throughout the day, again and again and again, God has ceased to be an impersonal or unknowable force that he is no longer a strange idea, and that he has become our father and our friend. So let's pray that that would be so for our church. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.